Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 this morning is where we are, uh, continuing through the book of Acts. And uh, while you're turning there, let me just make mention that uh, we're going to begin to gain speed through the book of Acts here pretty soon. You know, we're getting to a portion of this book where things happen in big blocks of verses. And uh, it's going to be a little bit tougher to go through a little, you know, a few verses at a time. And so we're going to be gaining speed here soon. But we're starting chapter 20 uh, this morning. And so go ahead and turn there with me. Acts chapter 20 is where we're going to be. How many of you would say that you thrive on less than eight hours of sleep a night? Let me see your hands. I mean, it is your ideal, all right? How many of you would say that you thrive on six or less hours of sleep a night, all right? How many of you would say that you thrive on four or less hours of sleep a night? A few. Well, that's something. You guys are sick. That's one thing that I know. Uh, you know, whenever you look at sleep, sleep is an interesting thing. It is uh, just how God has designed our bodies. Every 24-hour cycle, somewhere you're going to shut down one time. For some, if you're really blessed, numerous times, I guess, through the course of the day. And, uh, and so God has really wired our bodies to operate that way, and it's an interesting thing. I'm one of those that it, it doesn't take a whole lot for me to be able to fall asleep. You know, I just uh, amazed my family growing up. Susie just amazed how fast I could fall asleep. Uh, some people have to have pills and the right music and no light, the right pillow. I just need to be somewhat level, and I'm just about kind of set to go. Some of you may be kind of that way as well. But when you look at the topic of sleep, one of the things we realize is that there are good times to fall asleep, and then there are bad times to fall asleep. During this preaching time would be a bad time, for example. So there are good times to fall asleep, there are bad times to fall asleep. Yeah, I remember when I was in college, and I would be in, in, in certain classes in college, and, and it would be, you know, after, it'd be one of those afternoon classes right after lunch, and the professor would just be going on and on and on, and you were just fighting it, and you're, you know, that, that sensation that you're falling out of an airplane kind of a thing, it's just miserable, absolutely miserable. There are bad times to fall asleep. There are times that are not just inconvenient, but if we're not careful, if we fall asleep at the wrong time, it could be absolutely devastating at best, and deadly at worst. Every year, they say, those who do these types of studies, that 103 million people admit every year to falling asleep while driving their vehicle. And as a result of that, a thousand, over a thousand people every year lose their lives because of injury or because of accidents that are attributed to falling asleep simply at the wheel. There are good times to fall asleep and there are bad times to fall asleep. And let me just say before we even jump in to this particular passage that this morning in first service as well as this service that there are going to be some that God's going to come and he's going to kind of knock on your heart and he's going to say, hey, listen, it's time for you to wake up. And he's going to put his finger on a certain area of your life or a certain attitude in your life. He's going to put perhaps his arms around your whole life in its entirety. And he's going to say, you have just been an example of one big slumbering person who is sleeping at all the wrong times and all the wrong ways. And if you don't wake up, it's going to cost you and it's going to, it's going to cost you dearly. Well, in Acts chapter 19, you know, we finished out that chapter last week. What we saw was is there was just a, an absolute uh, uproar in the city of Ephesus. All the way through the chapter of night, uh, through chapter nineteen, we saw God move in dramatic ways through that chapter, through Paul's ministry, and through the gospel coming to the city of Ephesus. Now, when the gospel came to Ephesus, it didn't come to a little town; it came to a town of a quarter of a million people. Most of the people in that city were, were uh, without Christ. They did not have a relationship with God. In fact, if you remember, what they did as, a, as, a, uh, as an ongoing activity was that they worshipped this false goddess by the name of Artemis. Well, the whole city was geared towards this false worship, and there were certain silversmiths in town that uh, they made their living by building these little tiny household idols of silver to this false goddess of fertility called the goddess Artemis or Diana. 
People all over the city, 250,000 of them, would buy these things and they would present them as offerings to this false goddess. They'd use them, set them up in their homes as, uh, as um, items that would facilitate their worship to this false goddess. There was a huge lucrative business in the city of Ephesus geared around the making of these idols. Well, if you remember, reading through chapter 19, what happened was a significant number of people in that city, when they heard the gospel, they came to Christ. And when you come to Jesus, you really don't have room for idols in your lives. And so they were turning away from these idols, and they were following God. Well, the idol makers, the, uh, the silversmiths, I don't know if they had a little Facebook group or what, but somehow they all got in touch with each other. And they said, hey, all right, this guy Paul has come to town. He's preached this gospel about a person named Jesus who supposedly can forgive people of their sins. And we're losing people left and right. And our profits are going down and our businesses are sinking. So we got to get rid of this guy. And a whole, an absolute uproar broke loose in the city of Ephesus as a result of it. The silversmiths were at the front of it. They were saying, we got to get this guy out of here. They were threatening Paul's life. And as it all ended at the end of chapter 19, what happened was is that everything finally subsided. Everything settled down. There was one guy with a cool head who stood up from the representation of the city there, and he said, hey, this is crazy. The Romans are going to get on to us if we keep forming mobs like this. Let's just let it go. And it did. And that was the end of chapter 19. Well, when we see in chapter 20, what we find is that Paul is now on his way again. And he's ultimately traveling towards Jerusalem. The interesting thing is, is that when he heads towards Jerusalem, he takes a pretty creative route because he goes the opposite direction. And what he does is, rather than sailing around to Jerusalem, he goes west into modern-day Europe through the regions of Macedonia. 1 Corinthians helps us to understand why he was going to collect money from the churches there to take back to the poor Christians in Jerusalem, literally the poor, the impoverished. And so before he headed to Jerusalem, what Paul did was he traveled around uh, uh, and down and then ultimately would reverse course so that he could take this offering to the Christians in Jerusalem. Well, on the way, what happened was something that was extremely dramatic, almost comical in nature, as you'll see in just a second. But once we read through it and we look at these 12 verses in Acts chapter 20, what we find is is a passage that doesn't teach doctrine per se, But man, does it paint a picture of what happens in churches just like this, in lives just like yours, every single day. And so Acts chapter 20 is where we're going to pick up. And I want to give you a principle before we begin to read that I hope you'll jot down. We're going to pull it out of this passage, and we're going to make some application at the end. And the principle is this, is that the cure for deadly slumber, and there are some here that are asleep in all the wrong ways, and it's going to cost you if you're not careful. The cure for that deadly slumber is repentance and surrender to Jesus Christ. The cure for deadly slumber is repentance and surrender to the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to look through this passage in a second, and there are going to be some of you that have known Christ for a long time, and you love God, and you've walked with God for a long time, but there is an area or areas of your life where you're just asleep at the wheel, and it's going to be a very short amount of time before you blow through the guardrail and you're up in the, in, in the trees and your life is going to be absolutely wrecked and damaged as a result of it and others along with you if you're not careful. And then there are others who are here this morning and you don't have a relationship with God and you're in church and that's a great start, but going to church isn't going to make you into a Christian. It's not going to make you right with God. You know, I could go to Home Depot and I could, could hear about the manager and I could even know his name. He may even be here for all I know. But that doesn't mean I have a relationship with him. And just because you know and are familiar with the name of Jesus and because you're in a place where he's worshipped doesn't mean that you automatically have a relationship with him. 
And there are some this morning that are here and you don't have a relationship with God and your sin hangs over you. And if you died in that state, there would be nothing but the wrath of God over your life. But it doesn't have to be that way. If you wake up and if you heed the warnings of Scripture and what, God, what Scripture tells us, then you can leave here more alive than you've ever been as a result. And so let's pick up here in Acts chapter 20. We're going to begin reading in verse 1, reading down through verse 12. We'll make some application as we go. Pick up with me, verse 1. It says, after the uproar had ceased, that was the uproar that I just described that had happened in Ephesus. It said, Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. Remember, he's, he's headed west when he should be going east, but he's going west to collect money for the poor that are back in Jerusalem. He's going to take it with him. It says, when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. There he spent three months... And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So he travels up and over. He travels southward into Greece. And then because of this plot by the Jews, another set of opposition, he just travels back again the same way he came. Paul, again, is face-to-face with opposition, which happened all the time, it seems, in his ministry. Well, verse 4 tells us he had a group of guys traveling with him. Seven of them, and uh, they all have really, really hard names, so we won't take time to read through verse 4. You can have fun over that over over lunch and over dinner. But there are guys traveling with Paul in verse 4, seven of them. And what verse 5 tells us is he sends these seven guys on ahead of him. So you got Paul, and then you've got Luke, the one who wrote the book of Acts. They're sailing together. These other seven guys have been sent on ahead of him to wait for him. Look at what it says in verse 5. It says, these had gone on ahead. They were waiting for us, Luke says, at Troas. What in the world is the city of Troas? Well, it was a seaport town. It was a Roman colony. It was 10 miles from the city of Troy, right? You've heard of the ancient city of Troy. It's 10 miles from there. It kind of gives you a little bit of a context. And uh, there would have been Christians there. And so Paul, ultimately, along with Luke, verse, verse 5 and verse 6 tells us, he, he sailed on to Troy, uh, to, uh, to Troas, I'm sorry. Verse 6, it says, We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, or Passover, and we came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed for seven days. And so Paul and Luke, just to get the picture clear, they're traveling to Troas. There's going to be a group of Christians there to meet them, and they're going to spend a week, seven days with them. And that's where the dramatic occurs yet again. So pick up with me in verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. Now that verse is packed with a lot of stuff. One of the things that stands out, the first part of verse 7, it says on the first day of the week. Notice they're not assembled on the Sabbath, right? This is perhaps the first worship service that we see, and not like this, but the first worship service in all the book of Acts that we find that was a Christian worship service. Not happening on the Sabbath, but happening on the first day of the week or the Lord's Day. You you wonder, why do we do church on Sunday? I thought the Sabbath was on Saturday. Why do we do church on Sunday? More than likely, it goes right back to that example of the first century church. So they're gathered together, Paul said, or Luke tells us in the book of Acts, It says that they were gathered together to break bread. Now, it doesn't mean they were just eating, though that's what was taking place, but they were more than likely celebrating the Lord's Supper. And associated with the Lord's Supper, where they would take the bread and the the, the fruit of the vine, they would take that, and it would represent the body and the blood of Christ. Well, there was also a meal associated with that. And so you've got the early church 
in the city of Troas, assembled together. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper. They're sharing a meal together. And here Paul shows up, and he takes part in their worship as it unfolds. Now, Paul, being the messenger of the gospel that he was, it says he was planning to leave the next day, into verse 7, and he prolonged his message until midnight. doesn't necessarily mean that he, uh, that he waited till midnight to preach. It meant that he was still going strong when midnight rolled around. Don't get any ideas. I'll be done at least by 3 this afternoon, I promise you. All right, so he, he's just going at it. You know, I, I don't have any idea what his style was. I don't have, the Bible doesn't tell us any of that. You can, you, you can just know that he was just absolutely hitting the truth. He was encouraging those Christians there. He was reminding them to stand strong because you could bet there was persecution even in Troas. It was the nature of first century Christianity. He was reminding them of the, of the, of the urgency to share the gospel and of people needing to come to Christ as they had. So he's just going and going and going and going and going until midnight. Well, verse 8, it says, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. You know, Luke is, uh, he's given us a lot of detail here as he writes this gospel, and I'm glad he did. You wonder, why were there lamps there? Well, they, they weren't decorating the room with these lamps like you do your deck when you have a low country boil, okay? Th- this was not aesthetic in nature. They had these lamps because they didn't have electricity. It was the first century. And so this was their, their means of lighting that particular room. Well, what happens whenever lamps, torches burn? You remember this from science class, right? They use up oxygen. What happens when our bodies don't get enough oxygen? That's contagious, by the way. Did you know that? I did it in the first service, and I made that statement. I happened to look at the back row, and there was a lady back there going... You ever try to hold a yawn down? Does not. Just let it go. You know. You, you, you ever talk to somebody? They try to keep their yawn down, and their face to do all this guy. Just let it. <gasps> I mean, just let it go. And that's that's what was happening here. This room filled with lamps. Lamps are burning. Oxygen's going down. And there, seated on the windowsill, next verse tells us, is a fellow named Eutychus. And you're wondering if I ever made it to the Bible. I'm glad I didn't make it into the Bible this way. Eutychus is about to take center stage, so to speak. And so it tells us in verse 9 that there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill. Now, in those days, first century, no heating, no air, no electricity. This was not a window like you're thinking about. It wasn't one where you pop the tabs, open it up, and you can clean it with Windex nice and easy. It wasn't that kind of a window. It would have been more like a, uh, like a wind door. That sounds real country, a wind door. Some of you might say it that way. A wind door. It was built into the building so that wind could flow through. And so I'll go ahead and give part of this away. We'll see in a second. This was at least a third, fl- a three-floor, three-story building here. And there, built into the side of this building, was a door, a window for wind to sweep through. Lamps are burning. Oxygen's depleting. People are getting tired. And this fellow, Eutychus, is sinking into a sleep as Paul preaches up to and beyond midnight. So look at what it says. Let's continue on. Verse 9. There was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. Let me just, let me stop there for a second and just just make make a comment. That is exactly how the lives of Christians end up off road through the guardrail and in the trees. It's just like that. You see, if the, if the devil, if the enemy came to you dressed up in a bad Halloween costume, right, with a red jumpsuit and the pitchfork and the pointy tail, and if he came to you and ah, I'm the devil, 
What would you do? You'd pray, you'd resist him, you'd you know, circle around other Christians, and you'd be just fine, right? But he doesn't operate that way. He comes to the lives even of believers with very subtle temptations. And he comes to us in, the, in one sense using a tool of uh, justification where we justify why it's okay to get right up close to the line as long as we don't cross it. And then we justify in some other ways. It may have to do with our finances or with our relationships or the way we handle our bodies. And he says, you know, everybody else is crossing that line and they're in church every Sunday. It's okay if you just step a little bit over it. Just don't stay there. And so a Saturday we do that once every couple of weeks. And then he comes to us with just a little bit more justification. Hey, listen, that didn't hurt, did it? felt kind of good. And hey, you're still praying just like you always do, still going to church every Sunday. Why don't you just go ahead and move in a little bit deeper? And before long, slowly, ever so subtly, we drift away, off-road, through the railings, and into the trees. And when we're surrounded by the wreckage of our own choices, we wonder, how did I get here so fast? Utica sat on that third floor. And as the greatest proclaimer of the gospel aside from Christ himself spoke, he's sleeping. Let's move on. It says, he was seeking into a deep sleep, verse 9. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep. And he fell down from the third floor and he was picked up dead. That's an interesting way of saying he was stone cold dead when he hit the ground. He didn't appear to be dead. It wasn't as though this was, you know, he, he was, had all the resemblance of a dead man, but really he was alive. No, he was dead. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. What was Luke's occupation? Physician. He would have known if he was dead. And Eutychus hits the ground. And because of his slumber, he loses his life. Look at verse 10. It says, But Paul went down and he fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. Can we just read between the lines here? Black and white looks nice and benign, nice and safe, nice and clean cut. Let's just step out of the Bible for a second and step into that experience. That would have been chaos. I mean, imagine while I'm preaching, one of the folks on the media team falls out of the, th- out of the media thing up there, and bam, hits the ground. Is it, oh, let's just pray for him. No, it's not going to be that way. It's going to be chaos. Don't get any ideas up there, by the way. It's going to be chaos here. I mean, Eutychus, and if you read down through to, to verse 12, it describes him as a boy. The Greek language there would paint the picture of not a child, not, not an infant, but not an adult, probably, theologians say, between 7 and 14 years old. Eutychus falls out the, the window. I can't help but think there was at least a little bit of a woo you know, and bam, hits the ground, and people go nuts. That's my son. <laughs> you know, Paul says, hey, first he's like in the middle of his point probably, and then he goes, I'll be right back. And he goes downstairs, three floors, sounds cr- kind of crazy. It's what God let him do. He, he embraces this dead boy on the ground, and God on the spot performs a miracle. It wasn't Paul, it was God, and he raises him to life. What Paul does next is extremely interesting to me. 
Verse 11, when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak. All right? Hey, my sermon ain't over, folks. I still got it. I'm good till dawn. So he goes back up, preaches till daybreak, and then he leaves. And it says, verse 12, they took the boy alive and were greatly comforted. Let me ask a question. If we take the average ordinary Christian today out of a church just like this, people just like you and I, in this country, we know Jesus, we love Jesus, we follow Jesus, we sing the songs, we pray the prayers. If you take the average ordinary 21st century Christian today and you hold them up and compare them to either Paul, who expected God to do this kind of stuff, he was not rattled by God doing the miraculous, he saw God do something that only God could do, and it was so customary to him that he just went on about his daily routine. Do we look more like Paul or like Eutychus asleep at the wheel? Because we have a tendency to pray our measly little prayers. Lord, help me to find a parking place at the mall. Lord, help my hair to do good. It's just not doing good today. Oh, God, please help me to get a raise. We pray all these measly little prayers, and yet we never pray for the things that are so irretrievably broken that only God could fix them. Because we've taken the God of the universe that we just sung about and we put him in a nice little box and we don't pray prayers that say, God, will you just shake these islands with such a revival that it is undeniable that you are at work in the lives of people here? And we don't pray, God, would you just be at work in the lives of marriages that have seen every person on this earth that they could talk to, and yet they are so broken and so undone that it will take nothing short of a miracle. Will you just please do work in those kinds of marriages so it is undeniably known by everyone that you are at work in the lives of people? We don't pray those kinds of prayers anymore. Why is that? Because we're more like Eutychus, dozing and sleeping and comfortable and unwilling to get dirty in the work that God wants to do to redeem marriages, families, and people. And we're asleep at the wheel. Paul expected God to do this. His faith would not have been shaken if he didn't. But he expected God to do. The God that Paul served did God-sized stuff like that. And so who are you more like in your walk, Christian? Are you more like Paul on the front lines? Or are you more like Eutychus, sleeping? Jesus would tell a parable warning us of the dangers of sleeping at the wrong time. You can turn here with me if you want. It's in Matthew chapter 25. The parable here is in the context of those that don't know Christ, that don't have a relationship with God. And it's warning of the urgency of coming to Jesus quickly and wholeheartedly. But I think the application would be fair to say that there is also an application here in this parable, these 13 verses in Matthew 25, that would show even the believer the urgency of walking in a walk that is yielded to Christ. How do we wake up from our slumber, slumber that could cost us more than we could ever imagine? We wake up by repenting and surrendering to Christ. And so Jesus tells this parable, chapter 25, Matthew, verse 1. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps, and they went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were prudent or wise. 
For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now when the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and they began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers, buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to, buy, to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And so Jesus' commentary at the end, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. For the one who doesn't have a relationship with God, the enemy would love you to nothing more than for you to give your life to Christ tomorrow. <laughs> and then tomorrow he'll remind you that, oh, that's a great decision to make. You need to give your life to Christ. You need to be right with God. You need to walk with the Lord, the God who created you. You need to be sure of those things, sir, he'll say to you, but just plan to do it tomorrow after you've accomplished a little bit more, after you've sowed your oats just a little bit more, after you've chased after this, just do it tomorrow. And the next day it will be tomorrow again. And the next day it will be tomorrow again. Until the day comes where the simple truth of the matter is, is that even though God loves you so greatly and he's already paid the price for you to have a relationship with him, he's given his life on the cross through Jesus, he's risen again, everything is paid for. But if that door closes and your life comes to an end, not trying to be scary, and you know me, if you've been here long enough, I don't try to emotionalize people into relationships with Christ, but the reality is, is that that door won't be open forever. And I think we all understand, we're all smart enough to know, there are no guarantees. I have a feeling today in the obituary page of our newspaper, probably 40 names, many of whom never expected to be there today. And so we have to be careful that we don't sleep in the wrong ways. But if we're ready to wake up, the way we wake up is by repenting and turning and surrendering our lives to Christ. What about for the Christian? What about for the one who has a relationship with Christ? Is there a chance that we could have our relationship with God taken or forsaken? No. Once you come to a relationship with Christ, that relationship is secure. That's why Jesus called it eternal life, because it lasts forever. But listen to what the admonition is in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Don't turn, just, just listen. On chapter 5, listen to what it says. It says, but you, brethren, he's speaking to Christians, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, he says to the Christian, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of our salvation. I'd be willing to say that for some this morning, you risk eternal judgment lest you wake up and place your faith in Christ and choose to follow him in a life of repentance and surrender.
For others who are believers, you've made that decision, you've given your life to Christ, and yet you're drifting and you're slowly eroding, you're slowly uh, wandering off course, and your life is already beginning to stack up baggage, it's already beginning to, to accrue things that God never intended for you, things that he will gladly forgive, things that he will gladly restore if you come to him, but he would rather you not experience it. And so the time is today to wake up. Because sleep can be deadly when it comes in the wrong way, especially spiritually. But there is a remedy, and it comes when you turn from sin. You confess it to God. Lord, here's where I've fallen asleep. Here's where I've wandered. Here's where I've rebelled. Won't you forgive me? And he will every time through Christ. And won't you give me the design that you desire for me, the life that you desire, the plan that you have for me? Won't you unfold it in my life? And he'll do it. He loves you just that much. Let's pray. Lord, I would imagine all over this room are people who in the worst way of all, spiritually, they've fallen asleep. They're drifting. And they're almost there. Lord, it may be something that comes, a, a cost to that kind of sleep that's realized that makes them think, you know, today's the day I need to wake up. It may be something they never envisioned that would come because we reap what we sow. But Lord, I believe that you would far rather them listen as you fire this shot across the bow and as you remind them today is the day to wake up. Today is the day to return. Today is the day to repent and to place your life and surrender to Christ. The Christian 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a great deal. Walk a thousand steps away, it takes one step to come back. And it's a step of confessing to God and repenting and surrendering all over again. For those that don't know Christ, it's the same for you as well, much the same. And that you could walk a thousand miles from God, and yet it's one step, a step of surrender. Confessing your sin to God, Lord, I've blown it, I've sinned. I need a Savior, and today, the best that I can, I turn from my sin, and I ask Jesus, God Himself, who has died and who has already risen, to come in and to take over my life, to forgive me and to cleanse me and to lead me from this day on, and I'll follow you the best I can from this day forward. It's a prayer like that. Those words don't matter so much as your heart. It's a prayer of repentance and surrender to Jesus, to Jesus specifically, that'll bring you forgiveness, that'll bring you life like you've never known. And so, God, I pray today for the decisions all over this room that need to be made. Lord, I pray that we be found faithful, that as you speak to us and call us, may we be quick to follow. And may the decisions we make today be pleasing to you, for it's in Jesus' name. Amen.